teaches us, who leads and guides us in all truth. Uh, we tell, you tell us that you give us uh, the, the Holy Spirit, uh, the very third person of the Trinity that is in us and with us, that leads and guides us. And so we ask that you would do that, that you would teach us today as we spend time in your word, uh, that everything that is said and done here today would be for your glory and for your honor. And we pray that we would see more fully the reality uh, of who you are and what you've done for us, what it means to live in light of that. And so we ask that you would do that work in and through us today. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, when I was uh, in seminary, uh, I think it was the first class or one of the first classes, first semester, I took a class called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is just a fancy way of saying how to study the Bible. And uh, my professor, Dr. Harvey, who was one of my, my favorite professors in my time there, had this saying that he would say regularly uh, in class. He would say, context is king. And he'd say that over and over. He'd say that all the time. And as you're starting to learn to read the Bible and study it, and it becomes real apparent why that is true, why context is king, why context is really important. Uh, the context historically and socially and culturally that was going on when these words were written down and who they were written to. And there's also the context of a passage and the grammar and the words that are there and how they go together and the thought has gotten across. And there's there's also the context of the whole of the story of the Bible and where you are in the Bible and what's happening and the history of God's revelation and what he's shown us and the way it comes together. And so he would come back to this often and he would say context is king. And it was really important when you started to think about how to read your Bible and what it looks like. But I was thinking about that phrase, context is king, and I thought it actually has far-reaching implications, not just in reading the Bible, although that's important as well. It certainly is true when we're reading the Bible, but I think it's true in a whole lot of things, right? That context is important. Context is important when you're having a conversation with your, your friends or other people or hearing what they're saying and hearing the fullness of what they're getting across. Or context is important when you read the news, or you turn on the TV and you see the stories that are being reported to you, right? We, we live in a time where everything is very kind of uh, divided out and there's different news sources and different things. And if it's the guy they don't like, then they're going to not tell you the full context and they're only going to show you the parts they don't like. They're going to sensationalize it in different ways. And so context becomes really important. Like, is that really what they said? Because you can take something out of context and give you just a little blip and you go, oh, is that really what they said? And is that really what they meant? I was actually thinking about this. Maybe maybe you remember this. Maybe it's a, a reference that you won't know what I'm talking about. But there was a basketball player years ago, big basketball fan. I've been my whole life. But there was a very famous basketball player. His name was Allen Iverson. And Allen Iverson is now in the Hall of Fame. He was a Hall of Fame point guard. He was a really good basketball player. I think I read this week he played 14 seasons. But he became known for a particular press conference and something he said in that press conference. And if you've never seen it, it was after a game, they had lost, and he was frustrated, and he went into this rant about practice. Somebody asked him about missing a practice or something, and he said, are we really talking about practice right now? We're not talking about a game, we're talking about practice. And he kept saying it over and over and really emphasizing practice. And that clip got shown a million times, over and over and over again. You saw Alan Iverson just saying, we're talking about practice not a game practice. And the way it got said was that he doesn't care about practice, that he's a millionaire athlete and he doesn't care about practice. And that's the way he is. And it was shown as here's a spoiled athlete that doesn't care. And it got shown over and over and over again. And it followed him for years. People still say it today. 
They still talk about like, if you want to make an example of not practicing hard. Remember when Alan Iverson said, we're talking about practice. If you go and you watch that press conference, it's 30 minutes long. And the context of that press conference is Alan Iverson's best friend from childhood was shot and killed on that day. And he had just found out. He had just lost the game. He had just found out his friend died. He goes in and has to sit in front of reporters and asks, has to answer questions about a game. And in the context of what he was actually saying is like, we're talking about practice right now. In my life, when I am mourning the loss of my best friend who was just killed, you're asking me about practice? And that's really what he was saying. Actually, what he was saying was not what people had made it to be at all. Actually, what he was saying was really pretty good. In the context of your life, when your best friend dies, suddenly practice for a game doesn't seem so important. And that's really what he was getting at in that press conference. But nobody stopped to listen to what he was saying. And it made more sense to show that sound clip in this way to make it more he's a villain and we don't like him and all those kind of things. And it's sad, but that happens a lot. And so context is really important. It's important when we read the Bible. It's important when we try to understand the truth of what we're hearing. It's important when we're communicating with each other. But I would say it's even more important when you think about the story of your entire life. The context of your life. And what I mean by that is the meta narrative, the big story. What is the purpose of your life and the meaning of your life? And if you get that taken out of context, just like that press conference gets taken out of context and it's meant to mean something that he never meant it to mean, the same can be true with your entire life. If you take it out of the context with which God designed you for and you miss that context, it can lead to all sorts of problems. And so I want us to think about that this morning as we continue to look at the life of Jesus. We're now to these moments right after the resurrection. Last week we saw the empty tomb as Andy walked you through that, that they come and they find the tomb empty. We're now going to look at two snapshots that happen a little later on that first Easter Sunday. One is Jesus comes and walks beside these two guys as they're walking along the road uh, from Emmaus to Jerusalem. It's about a seven mile walk and he comes and joins them in it. And then he goes to his disciples who are locked away, afraid in a room together, and he appears to them. And I want us to look at those two, <clears throat> those two, uh, episodes here. And as we do, I want us to think about this idea of the context of the big story, of what God's doing, of our life and how we fit into that and what that looks like. And so the first thing that I want us to see, we're going to look at the disciples and how they were struggling, and what they were thinking. And there's a lie that they're believing that's distorting everything, that's taking it out of context, so to speak, in their life. But then secondly, I want us to see what Jesus shows up and says here, and the truth that he exposes that changes everything, that puts everything in its proper place or its proper context. And then lastly, how do we continue to live in light of that truth that Jesus exposes to us, right? So let's start with the lie that distorts everything that they're struggling with, and I want us just to think about the mindset of the disciples here. <clears throat> As they're struggling with what's happened and what's going on and all that's taken place, which is understandable. They thought Jesus was the Messiah and they're excited about what he's going to do and overthrowing governments and going to be a political leader. And then all of a sudden he's dead. 
And they're trying to make sense of that. And in fact, we see that as we start to read through this and what's happening here is these two guys are walking down the road. And so Cleopas and his friend are walking along and it says Jesus comes and walks along beside them. But their eyes, it says in verse 16, were kept from recognizing him. But then he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. And then one of them named Cleopas answered him. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? Which I love that Jesus shows up and he kind of doesn't let them see who he is. And he asks the question, hey, what happened? <laughs> well, what, what happened in Jerusalem with this Jesus, right? And so they said, well, Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all people. And our chief priests and the rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And so he says, this is what we're struggling with. We thought he was the one and then he's killed and we don't know what to make of it. And now we're hearing stories that maybe he's alive and we don't really know what's happening. But then right after that, Jesus shows up to the disciples. So he walks with them and he goes with them away. And then right after that, he shows up and the disciples are locked away in a room. Actually, John's gospel, which is a parallel passage to this passage here, beginning in verse 36, says they were in this room and the doors were locked because they were afraid of the Jews. They were afraid of those that had put Jesus to death, that had delivered him up, that maybe they would suffer the same fate. So they had gathered together and they had locked the door and they're afraid. Right? And Jesus shows up in the midst of them. And it says, as they were talking about these things, Jesus stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and they thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Right? And so he says, why are you guys so afraid? What's happening here? And I want you just to think about their mindset for just a second before we look at what Jesus says. They're afraid They're locked with the doors. They're locked away with the doors locked. They're struggling with everything that's gone on. And to their picture of all of it, this is a failed experiment. They thought Jesus was the Messiah. And they thought he was going to be the one that would deliver them. And they're scared and they're frightened and they're struggling. Uh, We see with Cleopas and his friend, they're walking along the road. It says they stopped and they look at Jesus and they were very sad. And they were like, we thought he was going to redeem Israel. We thought he was going to be the one who delivers us from the oppression of the Roman government, but the Romans killed him. And so you can start to see how they're struggling with what's happening. And I would say to you, the reason that they're struggling when you start to get to the bottom of what's going on is they're only seeing what's right in front of them. They're only seeing what's happening in their life at that moment right now. And it's very easy to get sucked into that, but you start letting the things that are right in front of your face be the things that, the only things that there are. And that's the way they're operating. They're only thinking about earthly governments. They're only thinking about the government and the Romans over them. And they're only thinking about those things that are right there. It's kind of like a baby. If you think about it, I just got to go to Texas this week and I got to spend time with, with my great niece And then my newest nephew, Cruz, which many of you have asked about. Cruz, you've been praying for is my brother's youngest son who was born with Down syndromes. He's doing great and he's growing and he's eating and he was there with us the whole time and it was a blessing to see him. But I got to spend time with Cruz and with Salem, my my niece's new daughter. And I remember that age where all of a sudden you can hold your hands in front of your face and then go, 
peekaboo. And they think it's the funniest thing in the world. Right? You know why? Because developmentally, you go away and you're gone. They only know what's right in front of their face. That's it. And that's kind of the way these guys are living. That's kind of the way the disciples are. We, we thought government, overthrow government, that's all there is. That failed. Now what? See, we often embrace the same lie in our own lives. We start to operate with just the things that are right in front of our face. Just the things that we're dealing with today or this week or the things that are right in front of us. Whether it's our work, it's easy today for that to happen with our work. You take a job and we now have phones and computers and laptops and iPads and we're always connected and we're always on and it never ends. And so it's constant in front of us and it's always there. It's always the most pressing thing. Uh, I've heard it said before that it's the, uh, the tyranny of the urgent. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. This needs to be answered and it needs to be answered right now. Somebody sends you a text and it's like, I'm expecting to hear back. You haven't answered in five minutes. What's wrong? Right? That's the way we operate today. But what ends up happening is that those things that are right in front of us become our whole world. And it's not just our work. It's our children, right? Children are a wonderful gift from God. We're called to love them and raise them and point them to the Lord, but we can let them consume our entire life where everything is our kids. And they start to take over and they're the things that's right in front of us. And so they become the most important and they're the thing that's there. We do it with jobs. We do it with the news. We do it with the struggle in our country and we watch the news and we get on and we get so absorbed in that and oh no, it's all a mess and this is all there is. And it's easy for us as finite people to start to operate that way. But that then becomes the context with which, in which we live. This is all there is. This is my context and this is the world and this is what's happening and those are the things that are right in front of my face and that's all I can see. And the problem is we then try to fit Jesus into our context. Like our life and what I'm dealing with is the entirety of the world and we miss the big picture. Right? You've heard the, the saying before, you, you miss the forest for the trees. You're so in it, you can't see the big picture anymore. And that's all of us at different times. And I think that's exactly what was happening with the disciples. We thought he was going to redeem Israel. And then he died. And we don't know what's happening. And we're afraid. And we're struggling. We do the same things in our life. I thought things would go like this and now they're not. And I'm so focused on this thing that didn't work out the way I thought it was going to work out. I can't see the big picture anymore. But then Jesus shows up. After the crucifixion, three days later, he shows up and he starts to have these different interactions with people. And he steps in and he blows apart this idea that this world is all there is. And so as he's walking with the two guys, go back to Cleopas and his friend, they're walking along and they say, we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. This is verse 21. But besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of the women of our company have amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and they did not find his body. And they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, 
So Jesus speaks into this, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, uh, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself, right? So they go, we don't know what happened, but there's these stories. And he goes, oh, foolish ones. The whole story is about this. And he starts to unfold the scripture for him. And then right after that, he comes and he stands among the disciples as they're locked away. And he says almost the same thing, right? They're going, what's going on? And they can't believe. And is this a spirit? And they're dumbfounded at what's happening. And Jesus begins to speak to them in verse 44. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning with Jerusalem. And so I want you just to consider what Jesus is saying. What just happened here in this moment? They're sad and they're afraid and they're struggling and this all failed and what happened? And then all of a sudden Jesus shows up and he goes, this world is not all there is. You're so taken with what's right in front of your face, but the story is far bigger than you ever imagined. I'm not just a king over this little area. I didn't come to overthrow Rome. I came to lay down my life. And this has always been the story to redeem not just Israel or not just a little place on the map, to redeem all people that would put their faith in Jesus. And he blows it apart. And I want you just to think about this for a second. I know this is really obvious. I hope it's really obvious. Uh, I like to say that my spiritual gift is pointing out the really, really obvious things. But sometimes they're so obvious that they need to be pointed out. When Jesus shows up, who was brutally murdered by the opposing forces, the, the government that's overseeing all things, that nails him to a cross and spear in his side as the blood and water pour out and he's dead and he's laid in a tomb and he comes back and he stands in front of him. He is proof positive that there's more than just this life. It's not just this life. There is life after life after death. And he is proof of it. And they're so taken with what's just right in front of them. And he goes, no, no, no. It's way bigger than that. And I am proof as I stand before you that that's true. And he stands in front of them and he starts to dismantle all the ideas that they had. Right? They're so consumed with Israel. Right? Cleopas and his friend. We thought he was going to redeem Israel. They're so consumed with overthrowing the Roman government. They're so consumed with political idea, ideology and what will happen. And the Messiah has to look this way. And Jesus shows up and says, there's a greater existence that's here. The story's far bigger than you see. It's not just these little things that are happening right in front of you, which are important and not to make light of the things that you're dealing with in your life. But when you place them in their proper context, they then begin to take their their rightful place And the proper context is that Jesus is Lord over all life and death. And he begins to show them this. He starts to unfold this for them. And so the context, the proper context in which our life fits is with Jesus as Lord over all of it. The story is actually about Jesus. It's actually about God's faithfulness and what he's doing. 
I love to say this, and, and if you've been around Coda, I've probably sent you the video at different times, but there's this little clip I love of Tim Keller talking about what's the Bible really about. And it's three minutes long, but he says, is the Bible really about you and what you must do to be saved? Or is the Bible really about Jesus and what he's done? And then he unfolds and he goes through this whole thing of saying, no, 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 the Bible's really about Jesus and what he's done for you. And all of the Bible is pointing to Jesus. That's exactly what Jesus says here. He opens the scriptures and showed them. Don't you see this was always the plan? This was always the case. It was always going to end like this. I was always coming to lay down my life that you could be redeemed. It was never about overthrowing a government. You know, the Bible says some amazing and remarkable things if we actually believe that they're true. But I want you to listen to this from Ephesians chapter 1. Because this really is a remarkable thing that it says. Ephesians 1 verses 3 and 4. Listen to what it says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And now hear this. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. You hear what he says? Apostle Paul writing there says that God the Father chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world. You hear what that means? That means before God created anything, before he ever spoke anything into existence and just God existed, he knew that he was going to give us the freedom of choice, real choices with real consequences. And he knew that we would take those choices and that we would sin, that we would rebel against them. And that the only way that we could be saved is that Jesus would have to come and do for us what we could never, ever do for ourselves. And he knew that before the foundation of the world. And so that means that the entirety of human history has been about Jesus and what he was going to come to do on our behalf. That's the story. That's the meta narrative. That's the whole thing. And it's always been that. And so when Jesus shows up and they're all like, what's happening? And they're afraid and they're struggling and they're wrestling with it. And he jumps in the middle of them and he says, peace be to you. They're all like, what? <laughs> peace. Right? He steps in the middle and he starts to tell them this. And then he starts to unfold all of history for them. He says he opened their eyes to understand the Bible and to point out these things to them. He says, this has always been the story. This has always been where this was going. This is the context with which you were made to live in. That the God of the universe created you to know and to love him. And that you rebelled against him. And that the only way that that could be reconciled is that God himself would have to come. And the second person of the Trinity, the only begotten son, would come and do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And Jesus then begins to unfold all of scripture for them. And so I want you to think about what he said. How he can stand in the middle of them as they're there with the doors locked and they're afraid and they're overwhelmed with all the things that are right in front of them. And he can say, peace be to you. Shalom. Wholeness. All things set right. And they're all like, what? And then he says, he opened their minds to understand the scripture. And he started to show them all the things in scripture that point to him. And I like to say here in, in Luke chapter 24, the, the road to Emmaus. And then here in this room, greatest Bible study in the history of the world. As Jesus himself, the author of the story, the author of God's word, God himself come to us and he begins to unfold and show how all of it points to him. 
And I can't help but think he opened the Bible right there to the beginning in Genesis 3. And said, Genesis 3.15, Eve through your seed is going to come one who's going to destroy the serpent. Who's going to destroy sin and evil once and for all. And he goes, that was me. That's talking about me. Or he went to Genesis 12 where God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless the world through your seed, Abraham. And Jesus says, that's me. I'm the seed. Or Genesis 15 where God says it again. Or Genesis 21 where it says, Abraham believed that God could raise his son Isaac from the dead. And he says, yeah, I gave Abraham a vision of me raising from the dead. And that's how he believed that. And he started to go through in all those ways and in all those things. In 2 Samuel 7, when God said to David, you're going to have a king that's on the throne forever. And Jesus goes, that's me. Or Isaiah 7. Emmanuel, God with, with us will be his name. And he goes, that's me. I am God with you. Or Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. That won't even open his mouth like a sheep being led to the slaughter. And he goes, that's me. Or Psalm 22 that we read just a couple of weeks ago that lays out exactly what happened in the crucifixion. And he goes, do you see? That was all pointing to what I was going to come to do. (gasps) This has always been the plan. Always. And Jesus says that all the way through and he shows them all these things that this is the way that it was always going to be. And so when he stands in their midst and he says, peace, right? Peace be to you. Peace with God because your sins have now been dealt with. Peace in the face of a crumbling world because I have overcome the world. Peace in the face of death because I have just shown you I have defeated death and in me you can walk right through too. And everything that you're worried and struggling with, Jesus says, it's all found in me and I'm here and this is why I've done it. That you too can walk right through in all these ways. And I want you to think about how that changes the context of your life. That changes everything. When you see the big picture of the story of what God's doing in Jesus, then suddenly the little things that overwhelm us, that get right in our face, if we can just step back and see how he's Lord over all of it. He's redeeming it all. He's at work in all these different ways and in all these different things. And that you can trust him in each and every step of how that goes together. Right? That's what Jesus tells them here. I love that he walks with the guys along the road. The road to Emmaus. And he hides who he is and he asks them those questions. Hey, what's going on? And then he goes, oh, foolish ones, slow to heart to believe. This was always the plan. Or he gets there with the disciples and they're in disbelief and they can't understand. And they're trying to go, just let me show you. This has always been the way it's going to work. It's always have going to been Jesus as the center of everything. And that's the context with which we were created to live. So if that's the truth, then how do we then live in light of that? Two things I'll tell you, and we'll end here with this. First of all is that you're made for Jesus above all else. He is the thing. The whole story orbits around him and who he is and what he's done for us. And so when we start to think about how we live in the proper context, not taking things out of context, not getting it wrong, if we're going to live in the proper context then we put Jesus at the center of everything and seek his glory above all else. Because if this is true, 
if the whole story has been about Jesus, if, if Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 and 4 have it right, then you are made to live for his glory. It is where you will find your greatest joy, which, by the way, Jesus says over and over. We've seen this all the way through the Gospels. He says it again and again and again. Come to me, all you who are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Don't worry about all the things of this world. I've got you. Seek first my kingdom and everything else will take care of itself. He says this over and over and over again, and then he shows up and he proves it. You can trust what I've been telling you because I have defeated sin and death and I am the center of all history. John Piper says it so well when he says, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. That you are created to know and to love God above all else and that brings the greatest glory to God, but that also brings the greatest joy and happiness in your life because that's what you're created for. And so if this is true, then make Jesus central in everything in your life. But then the second thing, and we'll end here this morning, is what he says to them right here at the end. Pick up again in verse 45. Then he said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that the repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And so he says, you are witnesses to this. And I've done this and now it's all taken place so that you can proclaim who I am to the ends of the earth. He says, you are witnesses, right? So go tell, right? Go tell people what I've done and who I am. And we are called into it. And he says, I'm going to give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so I'll end here this morning. I I told you I've been been running a whole lot lately. And so when I run, I read and I pray and I listen to music. (laughs) And those are the things that I kind of do. And it's interesting how God speaks to me sometimes. I feel like in songs and in different things. And there's this particular song I kept listening to. It's just on my playlist that I kept listening to. And at the beginning of the song, it says, isn't it strange that a gift could become an enemy and a privilege could become a chore? And I heard that over and over. And every time I run, I hear that song. Privilege can become a chore. And I go, isn't that the way we often operate in the church? That Jesus has come and done for us what we could never ever do for ourselves. And he's redeemed us and he's called us into his story. And he gives us the gift of the spirit. And then he says, go proclaim to all nations. And we go, ah, it's kind of hard. What if they have questions? I don't know. And I'm busy and I've got other things going on. And we have this wonderful privilege to proclaim who Jesus is. And we act like it's a chore a lot of times. But I want to remind you, it's the greatest privilege that you'll ever have in your life. To make much of Jesus. Every single person you meet. Every person that you come into contact with. The deepest need of their life is to know their creator. To know who God is. And the way he loves them. To know who Jesus is. And the way that God has forgiven them in Jesus. And that is true of every single person you meet. And we have the greatest privilege for the few moments that we have on this life, in this life, before we die or Jesus returns. The breath that we have now, we get to proclaim who Jesus is. And oftentimes we act like that's a chore. But it's the greatest privilege you'll ever get. And so we go, how do we live in light of this? Instead of the context that Jesus is the story, and the answer is we make much of him.
We love people the way Jesus has loved us. We speak the truth when we have opportunities. We name his name. We point people to Jesus because he is the deepest need of every single person. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. We thank you for doing for us what we could never, ever do for ourselves. We pray that as we come into this holiday season and we have opportunities with friends and neighbors and loved ones, that we would be quick to name the name of Jesus, that we'd be quick to point people to who you are and what you've done for us. Give us opportunities to love people well. I pray that you would give us, through your spirit, the understanding of the true context of our life, that when we want to focus on the things that are right in front of us, that you would help us to see them in light of how they can glorify you, that we would place everything in its proper context for your name and for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.